Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which looks at every Prime Minister in Canadian history in Part 1, but we're on Part 2, looking at the leaders of the opposition who never became Prime Minister. It releases every single Friday. I have Coast to Coast, which looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. That comes out every Thursday. And Canada's Great War, which comes out every Sunday and looks at Canada during the First World War. I do all of these podcasts full-time. The writing, the research, the editing, everything. So, every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. And if you enjoyed this episode, well, if you could, please give a five-star review. And if you do leave a written review, I will thank you on the air and throughout my social media. Well, for long-time listeners, you know that when a month has five Saturdays, I devote the last Saturday to nostalgia episodes. So far, I've covered The Beachcombers, Mr. Dress-Up, The Littlest Hobo, The Raccoons, and today we're looking at this show. Once upon a time, not long ago and not far away, we were at the harbor. Busy place today. Jerome and Rusty were here earlier. I'd like to come here. And this is really the first day of good boat watching. They said it was the official opening of the boat watching season. I'd like to come here and watch the boat. Left. Don't know where they went. Down shore ways, I believe. Look up. Way up. And we're on our way to the castle. I'll hurry over first and go in the back door so I can let the drawbridge down and open the big front doors for you. Are you ready? Here's my castle.
a time, it was the longest-running children's show in the world. Debuting before Mr. Dressup, Mr. Rogers, and Sesame Street, the friendly giant helped to set an example for what children's television could be. Today, I'm looking at the iconic children's show that ran for 27 years on CBC until it was unceremoniously cancelled. To talk about the friendly giant, we first need to talk about Bob Hummy. Hummy was born in Stoughton, Wisconsin to high school woodworking teachers Raymond and Rosalind Hummy on March 8, 1919. He would spend his childhood in the community and would graduate from the Stoughton High School in 1937. As a young man, Hummy, who grew up in a musical family, would often do a vaudeville act in the community with his father. Hummy would enroll in the University of Wisconsin, majoring in economics, and while at the university, he played in the school band. Following graduation, he would work at a bank until he joined the Air National Guard prior to the start of the Second World War. In June of 1941, his unit was activated and he was soon promoted to Staff Sergeant. Hummy would not serve in any active military zone during the Second World War, but he was instead given the assignment of studying psychology at Cornell University and then at the University of Wisconsin. By the end of the war, Hummy was processing and classifying discharging servicemen. One individual he discharged from the military was John Houston, son of Canadian actor and Academy Award winner Walter Houston, and father to Angelica Houston, another Academy Award winner. John, of course, would also win an Academy Award four years after he was discharged. Once he was out of the military, Hummy took a job at the University of Wisconsin State Radio Station, or WHA, which is where he began to develop his idea for what would become the Friendly Giant. Around this same time, he would marry Esther Eleanor Anderson, and together they would have four children, Richard, Anne, Ruth, and Peter. While he was working at WHA, Hummy would often drive from Madison, Wisconsin to Chicago, where he would watch rehearsals of a new television show called The Dave Garraway Show. Described as a casual program of music, songs, and chatter, it debuted in 1953 and only ran for one year, but it would have a deep impact on Hummy. He would begin to develop an interest in television programming, and the idea of a children's show began to form in his mind. One aspect of the show forming in his mind was of a giant, which at the time were often portrayed as scary and evil. He would tell his wife that he wanted to change that view and instead create a friendly giant. For Hummy, taking something that was scary and making it nice made the character doubly nice in the process. Hummy would go to his superiors at WHA and ask them if he could create the children's show. Even though the station was still six months away from getting their television license, he was given permission. For the next six months, Hummy began to work on the project while also working full-time on the radio. And the friendly giant debuted on WHA at the University of Wisconsin on May 8, 1954. Once upon a time, not long ago, and not far away, there was a farm. And listen. A drone. I think it's a parade. Not a circus parade, though. Not on the farm. Just farm animals. There. And now it stopped. The end of the parade, there's the boot. Look up. Who's playing bass drum, do you think? Do you know? 
Let's go to the castle and see. I'll hurry over first and go in the back door so that I can let the drawbridge down and open the big front doors for you. Are you ready? Here's my castle. Music was an important part of the show, considering how much music played a role in the early life of Hummy. While he became famous for playing the recorder on the show, Hummy was actually skilled with the clarinet and saxophone. He had purchased his recorder as a cheap replacement for his larger instruments while he was stationed in New York City during his time in the military. As it would turn out, the recorder would become his signature instrument because of the show. Seeing the potential for the show after viewing it, Fred Rainsbury, the head of children's television at the CBC, would ask Hummy to bring his show to Canada, offering him a 26-episode contract. The show would debut on CBC television in 1958, the permanent home for the friendly giant. And the show would continue to run in the United States until 1970. The show would always begin with the camera panning to the left of a detailed model or village, farm or other location until it came to the friendly giant's boot at the edge of the village. The show broke with television convention when Hummy did that with the perspective of the camera. By putting the miniatures of the set at camera height and then placing himself above the set, it prevented the viewers from seeing this full-sized person walking around a miniature set, which would have given it a feeling of Godzilla. Hummy kept his giant character somewhere in the shot to emotionally reassure preschool audiences and to minimize the jarring effect of miniatures and the full-scale person. The friendly giant would always say, Look up, way up, and then he would invite the viewer to the castle, telling him that he would get Rusty the Rooster and open the drawbridge. The traditional folk tune, Early One Morning, began to play on the harp and recorder as the camera moved towards the giant's castle and the drawbridge dropped down. The camera would then switch to a miniature furniture set where the giant's hand would arrange the furniture for the viewer to sit at. The camera would then pan up and the giant would call Rusty the Rooster, who lived in a book bag that hung on the wall next to the giant, and the window where Jerome the Draft would poke his head through. The bag that Rusty lived in was very similar to the concept of the TARDIS of Doctor Who, in that it held anything the giant needed and seemed to be much bigger on the inside. Now, the man who helped create Doctor Who actually came from Canada in the CBC, so I'm going to say that maybe the friendly giant had a part to play in creating the TARDIS. Both puppets were manipulated and voiced by Rod Coneybear, though in Wisconsin they were manipulated and voiced by Ken Ost. Coneybear would handle the puppets on the show throughout the entire run of CBC, and Coneybear would say he got the job because he had a great voice, but, more importantly, he was tall, and that allowed him to operate both puppets with his long arms at the same time. The 15-minute episodes would never be scripted, and instead followed an improvisational style that both Hummy and Coney Bear excelled at. There would be a one-page summary for the episode, but that was it. This type of improv was very uncommon for children's entertainment at the time. Uh, but you have a general outline. Now, yes. is it difficult? I've seen and worked in, uh, on stations where the children's show got a little out of hand with the ad-libbing 
that the puppets became very adult and a lot of in-jokes and things like yes, that. Now, that. That's easy to do and it's fun to do. And we do it. Oh, do you? On the rehearsal. <laughs> okay. Our rehearsals are sometimes uh, not quite suited for airtime. You know. <laughs> I, I, I see the crew all nodding here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then once on the air, those Jerome and Rusty and mm -hmm. Friendly have to be the same. Everything changes. The rehearsal is always rather noisy and the minute we tape it for real, Everything, the whole mood changes, everyone's mood. The slow, gentle nature of the discussions between Friendly, Jerome, and Rusty was also quite unique and would later be adapted by Mr. Dressup and Mr. Rogers. The show would begin with a gentle, humorous chat between Friendly, Rusty, and Jerome, followed by a story from the book bag and then a musical performance. If extra instruments were needed for a song, then other puppets such as Angie and Fiddle, the Jazz Cats, Patty and Polly, and the Raccoons would play instruments. For all the harp portions of the show, including the opening, the show's harpist, John Duncan, performed. to get everything into that last one, but that yeah. that was a good yeah. barn dance. Boy, that was a good one. Our own barn dance. You know, the wonderful thing about barn dancing is when you get home. What? You have no trouble sleeping. Oh, I but should think not. <laughs> so exhausted. Well, think of that's, Rusty playing, yeah. playing all those notes. Yeah. That's oh. pretty smart chicken wing bones there. That's, that's enough for a month of playing. I you think. know, training, training is everything. A little more, um... Yeah, the goodbye, the goodbye music. music. Sure, right. here we go. Yes, I've got to say. What? Clever feathers. Thank you very much. <laughs> yep. To end each episode, Friendly would then play early one morning on his recorder and say goodbye to the viewers, Rusty and Jerome, as he put the furniture away. And he would usually say, quote, It's late. This little chair will be waiting for one of you, and a rocking chair for another who likes to rock and a big armchair for two more to curl up in when you come again to the castle. I'll close the big front doors and pull up the drawbridge after you're gone. Goodbye, goodbye. End quote. Friendly would then wave to the camera as it zoomed out and the drawbridge was raised. The moon would be above the castle and the cow would jump over it to end the show. Hummy would say in 1982 of the format of the show, quote, we try to hold a child's attention for 15 minutes on one subject, which is harder than keeping him amused a minute at a time. End quote. The show was often compared to Mr. Dressup, the other behemoth of children's television in Canada. In 1970, Maclean's would write, quote, Friendly is shorter and simpler of the two programs, but the simplicity is deceptive. It masks a careful structure worked out by Hummy and his puppeteer Rod Coneybear. There was very little over the years. Every program is built around a simple theme, the concept of changing. The people wear hats, and that is illustrated either by a storybook or by music. Friendly is an obvious father figure. The kids identify with either the rooster puppet called Rusty, representing an excitable younger child, or with Jerome the giraffe, the know-it-all older brother. End quote. At its height, the show reached 800,000 Canadian children each week. Hummy would say, quote, We try to create an awareness in the child. There is no great psychological theory behind the show. We use our intuition. 
I try to act as a reasonable parent with a couple of kids. The mood is one of quiet masculinity. You could say that the manner is the messenger. We assume kids like us. End quote. While known as a friendly and kind man by all of those around him, he would sometimes become steely and protective of the show if any producers tried to interfere. Coney Bear would say later, quote, There were some producers who came along and thought, Oh boy, Bob, here we can do this, we can do that. We can get more sets, we can get more puppets. That guy probably wouldn't be back next week. End quote. Just that he was to be a quiet uh, person and a normal adult. Uh, we just used the giant to attract attention at the beginning and the end, and it's a, it's a good way to get into it. And it gave me an excuse to have a giraffe for a friend, because the giraffe being 18 feet tall or so is like a puppy dog to a giant. And um, that was it. But the, the notion was to have a giraffe and a rooster, the long and short of it, as it were, which is a standard thing, a way of coupling uh, comics, uh, as you know. And, uh, oh, I think we had in mind that Jerome would be a little more worldly and outgoing, and Rusty a little quieter, more introverted and bookish. And then I was the uh, kind of mediator between these two who were in mild conflict from time to time. So there is conflict, and, but it's always resolved. That's the whole yes, idea. Yes, and it's always very, very general conflict. It's not but they wanted to start you off in that first show with a, a bit of a different sort of a character, did uh, yes, they not? Yes, I know you mean the wig? The wig, the, yeah. The fright wig. Uh, there was a, a feeling that a giant would be frightening to uh, small children. And... Uh, my first director thought I should look funny, comical. And he fixed me up with a red fright wig, which is a wig parted in the middle on all sides. And it, it was funny. It was terrible. I didn't like it. I didn't like the image. I felt quite serious about this, and I wanted to play the role straight. Um, so on the first day, and we were the first program on a new station. We were the first program on the air. And the countdown came. We'd been rehearsing for weeks in closed circuit. The countdown came, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and got about to 3. I picked it up, and I had my own hair combed on and tossed it out on the floor, and there was nothing, 9, 8, 7, 6, and got about to 3. I picked it up, and I had my own hair combed on and tossed it out on the floor, and there was nothing anyone could do. So I, I flipped my wig, and, <laughs> and I came on as myself in a much more serious vein, and I've been that way ever since. In 1984, the new progressive conservative government of Brian Mulroney came to power, and it put deep cuts on the CBC. One of the consequences of that was the cancellation of the Friendly Giant, although CBC executives stated that the cancellation did not have anything to do with the cuts. The Globe and Mail would print in an editorial, quote, Why? Why do the budget wizards always draw a bead on quality? End quote. An editorial in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix would state, quote, no friendly giant on television. That's like telling Virginia there's no Santa Claus. All the bureaucrats in the CBC hierarchy survived the budget cut, but the friendly giant wasn't big enough and the voices of millions he has befriended over the years weren't to be heard. Ah, now who will our little people have to look up to? And where will parents ever find a better morning babysitter than the giant? End quote. Letters would be sent to CBC and the House of Commons over the cancellation. MP Barry Turner, a member of the Progressive Conservatives in Parliament from 1984 to 1988, would state on the floor, quote, The Canadian youth of tomorrow will be deprived of an unmistakable element of pure Canadian goodness. End quote. Unfortunately, his efforts to save the show were unsuccessful. He would say years later, quote, 
It was extremely soothing and peaceful, non-violent. It was wholesome. If you compare the tranquility of the show he had to this incredible violence we see on television today, there's no comparison. End quote. It was believed by many fans who grew up with the show that the decision to cancel the friendly giant was to create a public outrage so that the funding cuts would be reversed. And while there was a great deal of anger towards the cancellation, the cuts were not reversed, and no new episodes of The Friendly Giant were made. The show would continue in repeats until September 1987, when it was removed from the CBC for good, to make way for new children's programs. In all, over 3,000 episodes of the show were made, of which 850 are currently housed in the CBC archives. As for Hummy, he would say of the ending of the show, quote, But I like repeats myself. It's like a good book. You don't just read it once. End quote. Of course, there was also sadness mixed in with the loss of the show for Hummy, and he would say in December of 1984, quote, Many people are calling just to say thanks. I have to say I'm disappointed it's over. I still have many ideas left. End quote. He would add, quote, I find that kids being given so much information these days become readily bored. They're quick and precocious. When I began, I wanted to involve viewers one at a time, to engross a child in listening. Listening is not a passive experience. End quote. Arguably, the biggest praise for the show came from the giant of Canadian children's entertainment, Ernie Coombs, a.k.a. Mr. Dressup. He would say, quote, It was a good show for preschoolers. Good relationships were modeled. Each was interested in what the others had to say. There was a strong sense of dependability. Good music and stories in the program. We occasionally played practical jokes between our show in Studio 1 and Bob's in Studio 2. Bob created a quiet and trusting relationship with his audience. The gentle ending of each show was reassuring. End quote. Over the course of its run, the show was honoured many times including receiving awards from the Children's Broadcast Institute of Canada, the Ohio State Award, and a Ryerson Fellowship. The Ryerson Award Committee would state the award was, quote, rooted in our conviction that the Friendly Giant program's elegance, gentleness, and its uncompromising commitment to its audience of preschool children reflect the highest possible standard of integrity in children's television programming. It is your work as a creator, writer, and principal performer that we wish to recognize. End quote. The Friendly Giant was replaced by a new show called Fred Penner's Place. As a result of replacing such a long-running and beloved show, Penner was unfairly labeled as the Giant Killer. Not, I mean, I, I was a huge fan of the Friendly Giant as well. Um, so it was, it was odd that that I would be taking over over that spot. And and there was there was a sort of tongue in cheek time where where people, you know, where or there there was some some PR saying I was the, the Giant Killer. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. It wasn't wasn't my choice. Um, yeah, there, there was there was a little a little bit of pressure in all of that. You know, following Bob Homie's um, legacy of 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 being a, a, a gentle giant, mm-hmm. and uh, and and there have been. Oh, I hadn't thought of this before, but but in some of my PR, uh, there there is a, a a phrase of calling me a gentle giant because mm-hmm. I'm you know I'm I'm six two, a couple hundred pounds, and uh, and so it. I I think I I've. I've I wasn't trying to fill his shoes, but I but I think I maintained a kind of delicate approach to the audience that uh, that the friendly giant did. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it, it, it was, uh, he, he didn't, he didn't condescend, you know, it was, it was, it was very, it was a very gentle approach to interacting with the audience. It was, hi, come on in. I, you know, I, I, I there's, I'm going to move these chairs around. There's a, there's a chair for two to crawl, crawl up and I'll move this close to the <laughs> fire. And you, 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 you felt like you were being included in this, you know, in, in this program that, um, he was respecting you and your comfort and where you would be. And, and, uh, and then he would go into, you know, a, a song and he'd, he'd play his, his recorder, that beautiful recording, recorder music. And, uh, and, and so I think I, I did honor his style, even, even though I wasn't trying to emulate his style, I, I honored what he did. And, um, and I like to think that, that, that my show had a, had a similar, you know, non-condescending quality to it. Following the cancellation, Hummy would settle down to a quiet life on his property near Grafton, Ontario. He would join the Coburg Rotary Club, and with Wally Reed, a fellow Rotarian, he would form the musical group Timeshare, which performed music in the area at retirement and nursing homes. Even after the show was off the air, Hummy was protective of it. When a band called Friendly Giants came along, the lead singer, Stephen Fearing, received a phone call from Hummy who kindly asked that he not use the name for his band. Fearing agreed, and he and Hummy would become friends for the rest of Hummy's life. Now, Hummy could have become a millionaire from licensing the show, but he refused to do it. Coney Bear would say, quote, Bob wouldn't commercialize his bond of trust with the kids. He opened no supermarkets, you know, because he didn't want to spoil the illusion for the kids. He didn't want them to know he was an ordinary guy of ordinary stature. End quote. In fact, some of the quotes from this episode that I've played come from one of the few interviews he did outside of his giant costume, which he did in 1982 with the CBC when he was promoting an album he had released. Well, I think that I'm accepted pretty much as a much bigger person, and it would be puzzling, puzzling uh, to our younger viewers. Now, if they see me with my glasses and my hair, I don't think they'd believe me if I told them who I was. Hummy would become a Canadian citizen in the early 1990s, and on November 2, 1998, he was awarded the Order of Canada. He was unable to travel due to battling prostate cancer, so the Governor-General, Romeo LeBanc, made the rare decision to travel to his home to award him the honour. Hummy would say of the honour, quote, I'll always remember this day as a perfect cap on 30-odd years of just having a wonderful time being friendly. End quote. Many would look back on the impact that the show had on their lives. Don Cherry would state that people often mistook him for Bob Hummy, and he would state what the show meant for his family, saying, quote, My kids remember Friendly when I was playing in Sudbury. We had driven up from Springfield to play the Wolves of the EPHL. Friendly, Rusty, and Jerome were a hit, not only for Canadian kids, but my American kids too. It makes you wonder why they would not keep going with such a great show. Our family loved the music, the set, but mostly the lovely way Bob talked to the kids. I wish he was back. End quote. On May 2, 2000, Hummy died from cancer at the age of 81, and he would be buried at the Fairview Cemetery in Grafton, Ontario. Upon his death, McLean's would write, quote, At the end of each show, the sun set and the cow jumped over the moon. In the friendly giant's world, anything was possible. End quote. 
Letters flooded into newspapers as well. Samuel Wagar of Abbotsford would write, quote, I can't believe how upset I am. There are tears in my eyes and a lump in my throat. May the gods reward his sweet soul and kindness with a rebirth into a life filled with happiness and joy. End quote. Douglas Cornish of Ottawa would write, quote, Bob Hummy served his country well and touched many Canadians' hearts throughout the years, especially children. If anyone is wondering where this heavenly man is now, just look up. Look way up. End quote. Coney Bear would say of Hummy in the show, quote, It was so unusually quiet and normal. Bob, as a performer, was almost mesmeric. He would look at the camera and understand he was looking into the eyes of the little kids watching him. He got endless letters from Mother saying, Thank you so much for those quiet 15 minutes. My kids just sit there and drink it in. End quote. His son, Robert, would say, quote, Producing shows for children was what he wanted to do all his life. End quote. In 2005, The Friendly Giant was honored as a master work by the Audiovisual Preservation Trust of Canada. It is one of only 24 shows to be honored as such. Other shows include The Beachcombers, Mr. Dressup, and SCTV. In 2017, during a ranking of the greatest Canadian television shows ever to air, conducted through a Twitter poll that received hundreds of thousands of votes, The Friendly Giant defeated several other iconic children's shows, including The Polka Dot Door, before it lost in the children's bracket final against Mr. Dressup, the eventual winner. Props, costumes, and puppets were on display at the CBC Museum, but all items were removed from the museum in 2007 after Rusty and Jerome, without permission from the Hummy family, appeared in a sketch at the 2007 Gemini Awards that the family stated was in poor taste and disrespectful of their father. I've worked at Felt With Feelings Retirement Home for 25 years now. We have 100 retired puppet residents here whose TV shows have either been cancelled or forgotten by humans. I've been sitting in this sack since 1958. The friendly giant was off the air and I'm still in the same sack. Sometimes we bring in special guests to boost morale. Casey and Finnegan were really pissed about it. They made such a stink, they got locked up. These puppets are bored. All they do is drink and smoke and have sex. Between you and me, most of these puppets could still be working. They just need another chance. Yeah, what do you say? Give us a chance. Just think about it. Please. <laughs> Tough to watch, isn't it? Hi, I'm Camilla Scott. Did you know that most puppets only get four or five years in the television spotlight? Does that seem fair to you? Forgotten lives of puppets, or flop, raises awareness for puppets that have been discarded by the television industry. Personally, puppets terrify me. But this isn't about me. Send your support today. CBC would apologize for using the puppets in the sketch, stating, quote, We have apologized to the members of the Hummy family for not getting their permission to use the friendly giant puppets, and we sincerely regret they feel any trust was breached. End quote. Until 2017, the castle wall and the window were on display at the CBC Museum. 
Currently, the railway yard used in the show's intro is on display at the Pump House Steam Museum in Kingston. Rod Coney Barrett would pass away on September 5th, 2019, at the age of 89. And I will close out this episode with a quote from Coney Bear, who spoke on the death of his friend Hummy, saying, quote, I think Bob Hummy was one of a kind, and it was my great good fortune and pleasure to have been able to share in his show with him. I think he was Canada's greatest TV personality and writer, and he did it simply, authentically, with drollery and love, and we won't see his like again. End quote. This little chair will be waiting for one of you, and a rocking chair for another who likes to rock, a big armchair for two more to curl up in when you come again to our castle. Now I'll close the big front doors and pull up the drawbridge after you're gone. Goodbye. Goodbye. enjoyed that episode and my look at the legend of Friendly Giant. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Lionel Romaine, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randa McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rowa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information from Look Up, Way Up, Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, BroadcastingHistory.ca, Wikipedia, CBC, Edmonton Journal, Montreal Gazette, Ottawa Citizen, and the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. Thanks. I'll see you again next time.